A lot of things sort of fell into place for me. A lot of experiences I had had as a woman trying to navigate what was often a very male workplace, trying to navigate motherhood and work, trying just to do everything, (laughs) really, and constantly feeling that I was failing at something. And I found myself in a position at that point where for the first time I really didn't know who to vote for. I didn't feel as though any there was a political party that was really prioritising women or putting women's lives, experiences and perspectives on, on the same equal footing as those of men. And so I became part of a, a team of women that created the Women's Equality Party, Britain's first feminist political party. And that was a wild ride. Welcome to the Leaders with Babies podcast. I'm Felina Hefti. I am the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus. With this podcast and our award-winning Leaders Plus Fellowship program, I want to give you access to inspiration and practical support to continue to progress your career whilst enjoying your young children. You can take the first step to join a network of like-minded, ambitious parents who love their children from all sectors by going on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash fellowship. Applications to our fellowship have opened and will close on 15th October. You will get a senior leader mentor, access to thought leadership about what works for parents and careers and space to think in a structured environment. If you have any questions, you can schedule a call with our with me via our website or you can also join a Q&A session which some of our fellows have put on from previous year coming up in the next week or so and there are some part funded places available. So today's chat is with Sophie Walker who has been a hero of mine over the last few years. Sophie is the founding leader of the Women's Equality Party. She is currently the CEO of the Young Women's Trust doing brilliant work supporting women across the UK. She is a change maker and she shares with us how she became someone who drives change in the face of adversity and how we can all turn angry energy into real tangible change. She's quite inspiring, I found, so I hope you enjoy today's conversation. A very warm welcome, Sophie, to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Why don't we start with you introducing yourself, your family, and give us an overview of your career to date. My name is Sophie Walker. I am Chief Executive of Young Women's Trust, which is a feminist organisation campaigning for economic justice for young women between the ages of 18 to 30. I live in North London with my husband and my two daughters, and my two stepsons. My career began as a journalist. I joined Reuters News Agency in my late 20s and traveled the world for them. Uh, had a wonderful time as an international journalist covering everything from trade and economics and money to politics, current affairs, stock markets. I was posted to Paris for a couple of years. I was posted to Washington for a couple of years. I worked out of the Westminster office as the foreign affairs correspondent, traveling with prime ministers and foreign ministers to Iraq, Afghanistan, West Bank. I had a really varied and fascinating career. I became a campaigner when my first daughter was diagnosed with autism at the age of eight 
It was a really painful process. It took a good five years. We were passed from pillar to post. We were not supported. We both ended up in a very bad way. My poor daughter was having a horrible time. And so I became a campaigner for uh, specifically people with autism and their carers, which then became a campaign particularly for girls with autism because it became clear to me what discrepancies there were in terms of understanding the female experience of autism. And from there, I don't know, a lot of things sort of fell into place for me. A lot of experiences I had had as a woman trying to navigate what was often a very male workplace, trying to navigate motherhood and work, trying just to do everything, (laughs) really, and constantly feeling that I was failing at something. And I found myself in a position at that point where for the first time I really didn't know who to vote for. I didn't feel as though any there was a political party that was really prioritising women or putting women's lives, experiences and perspectives on, on the same equal footing as those of men. And so I became part of a, a team of women that created the Women's Equality Party, Britain's first feminist political party. And that was a wild ride. I learned a huge amount. We did a huge amount. I did that for uh, for nearly five years. And then just over a year ago, I moved to become the chief exec of Young Women's Trust. I felt that it was time for the next challenge. And I specifically wanted to work in the third sector. I felt that there were really some very interesting opportunities to think about what charitable work looks like in the 21st century and how we reframe it around something which is far more led by beneficiaries and steps away from the more traditional, slightly Victorian approach of top-down suggestions. (laughs) Just on a slightly unrelated note, I finished the book by Ruth Bergman and you know that the one about humankind, the whole idea is that humans are kind and actually what you need to do is have a, ask what they want and, and actually give them, not give them, but work with them to create the future. It's a really good book, I'm probably not explaining it properly here, but what you just said about supporting young women, not, you know, to be the beneficiaries that you give something here and there, but actually you involve and work together to create a different future is very exciting. Yeah, and it's really, I'm really enjoying the work at Young Women's Trust. We've had a wonderful year. The staff are fantastic. The young women are fantastic. And we are really working hard to create an organisation that is led by and for young women, that they are really at the heart of, of everything that we do. And your children are teenagers now, aren't they? Not all of them. I have an 11-year-old, I have a 17-year-old, an 18-year-old and a 19-year-old. I've got a two and a four-year-old, but I'm told the challenges now are nothing. Apparently it gets really tough when you have teenagers, <laughs> <laughs> which is extremely encouraging. And I would urge anyone with older children <laughs> not to send that message to, to us. <laughs> but I presume there's a lot of demand on your time. Do you work full time? Have you always worked full time? Or how over your career, how have you um, moved from... I have gone in and out of full-time, part-time, flexible time. When Grace, my elder daughter, needed help, I changed my work. I stopped being a reporter, a journalist, and I became a sub-editor, which was steadier hours, much more regular shifts. And I moved down to doing part-time working because it was really becoming very difficult otherwise to work and to balance the regular phone call that wasn't looking after her and couldn't cope and would demand that I came and collected her. The constant attempts to get meetings with doctors and 
education experts, occupational therapists. I mean, it was just endless. And we were on our own. I had to fight and fight and fight. I would be going to work on the days that I worked with sort of massive lists written in biro up both of my arms. And I would spend my days at work in a worry that I wouldn't make it through to the end of my shift without the school ringing again or without some other sort of disaster happening. And it was incredibly stressful. I mean, it was interesting how it came about because how, how my work shifted because, you know, I had been a journalist. I was a journalist for a long time and I, I travelled the world. And, and for a period of time, I was a single parent and there was just me and Gracie. And I had live-in childcare. And to some degree, that was actually easier than being married and having the... <laughs> And having, you know, the constant tension between who was working and who was doing the childcare. Once I was single and sort of had had my own wife, it was like, oh, this is how you do it. That's a very black joke, by the way. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, what I'm saying is that you're not advocating for us all to ditch our partners. But no, I get what you're saying. I absolutely get what you're saying. Don't all get divorced. That was, I think, at the point at which I really began to see the choices that women are told they have are not choices at all. You make choices in a context and the context is all. And the context was one in which I was not really free to make the same kind of choices that so many of the men I worked with were. And I understand also the pressures on men trying to balance fatherhood and work. I, you know, I would like to see many, many more men campaigning for equal parental leave and equal pay and flexible working. That would get us a long way. But so I had been working as a reporter, childless and fancy free. I then had a child and, and that was difficult. I was, as a single parent with some, you know, live-in support, it was actually very straightforward, although there was the constant, you know, the times that I wasn't with her were, as all mums know, that was a, a period where you, you know, it's a sort of slightly anguished mix between liberation and uh, missing them. I got a big promotion. I became a regional news editor when Gracie was when we were just about to start this battle, actually. And, and that was a very interesting period because I also became pregnant again. And so I was doing this big job with a big promotion and had to sort of say two weeks after, by the way, I'm pregnant. And my manager was completely brilliant. And I went into this massive job and did it all while pregnant. And I think it was a very important moment for me. It was a moment where I saw that with the right support and the right environment, you know, I could do the big job. I could do it while pregnant. I could manage this stuff. I hit my targets. I got my bonus. I felt I should have got a medal at the end of it. <laughs> but then after that period, it became increasingly clear that I was going to have to work differently. So that's when I went to a different job and a different kind of, of working. It was absolutely full-on intense working all the time. It combined all the challenges of building a startup with building a political party with building a membership base with, you know, so just sort of pick your top three most difficult things, really. That's what we were trying to do all at the same time. And the pressure was immense, as was the pressure of doing a lot of that stuff in the public arena. You know, I was suddenly a, a public figure and I was going out to have quite often quite confrontational public debates with a misogynist in a nice suit who would be wheeled out to explain why women had enough equality or why feminism was essentially bad for everybody. So I found myself doing a job that was very, very stressful, very public facing, enormously rewarding. There was no version of that existence that didn't feel 110% switched on all the time. And I really could not have got through that period without the man I am married to 
now my husband who is a feminist who is my soulmate who is my best friend who is a fantastic father who has a tremendous sense of fun who will rise to any occasion <laughs> I just completely adore him and I I just could not have done any of that without him and obviously you are a feminist but I imagine most of us including the feminists being faced in that sort of situation and at the same time even though you did have the support of a brilliant man still having that pressure still Want, and then with the additional constant negotiation with all the agencies involved in the care of your daughter, did you at any point think about just throwing the towel in, perhaps taking an easier job or taking a few years off paid work? Or did that never cross your mind as a temptation? Well, I mean, the other thing to say is that obviously working at the Women's Equality Party, I was surrounded by brilliant women and the sisterhood kicked in and everybody who was doing that work was doing it with an understanding of why it mattered and just how difficult it, it was. And there were lots of us juggling all sorts of things. And so while it was difficult, there was also an overwhelming sense of solidarity that made a really big difference. I mean, at that point, you know, by then I had four children. So I had my daughter from my first marriage. I had my baby from my second marriage and I had acquired two lovely stepsons. Family life requires a lot of organizational talents. Being part of a blended family brings a whole additional layer to that. And I think actually that was what helped us. You know, we had always, we had to be super organized because there were so many <laughs> moving parts. I had a, the sisterhood of the Women's Equality Party. I had a, a wonderful, wonderful partner. We were lucky enough to have childcare support as well. Neighbors, friends, you know, it takes a village really. Was I ever tempted not to work? No, never. Apart from the fact that I've always had to work. We've never really had been able to, we've never had the luxury of being able to say one of us can stop working or, that, or any of that. But I, I always wanted to work. I've always, always wanted to work. My mother always worked. My mother was a member of the Women's Liberation Movement, campaigning for childcare. And <laughs> I remember her and her friends set up a childcare co-op in the 1970s in Glasgow, where I grew up. And she always worked. And it was always really clear to me that that was a really important thing for her and it gave her agency and a sense of herself you know I'm not I'm only speaking for us you know women make their own choices and, and and what I've always wanted to work towards is a world in which women can make real choices that they are made with the freedom to do and be what you wish to do and be they are not constrained by so often by sexist career advice a lack of childcare infrastructure sort of patriarchal economics that understands physical construction and men's jobs as the only real way to drive the economy. I'm very conscious talking about the choices I've made that I have been lucky. You know, I'm a white middle-class woman. My parents were working-class northerners. They were the first of their families to get to university. I've always been very, very conscious, thanks to them, of, of the work and the struggle involved. I don't think any of my choices for granted just hearing your story for me is pretty impressive because i know how hard it is to drive change when you already have lots of other commitments and you probably at the time when you got involved in the women's equality party you probably had a day job in quotation marks but somehow you still decided despite everything going on and your really significant commitments to put a lot of energy into driving change for others 
Do you think that has come from your parents or why did Sophie Walker end up doing that? I mean, you could have an easier life, I'm sure. <laughs> Who wants an easy life for only here once? <laughs> it's a really interesting question, isn't it? And it's one that I am considering more and more as I get older. I'm going to be 50 next year. We are, you know, living through this pandemic, strange times. It does prompt, I think, a sort of consideration of what your priorities are and how you want to live. My parents, they care about the planet, they care about social justice. My mother in particular always imbued me with the sense that life is short and time is fleeting. And if you're going to do it, do it right and do it now. Don't drift. And so I was, you know, and I'm the eldest of three daughters. I suppose in some respects I have that sort of classic eldest child syndrome that I'm, I try really hard and I, I felt a lot, I, you know, I, I did feel a lot of pressure to perform well. I was a very geeky kid. I did not have a lot of friends. I was very focused on grades and performance and excelling and being good. And, and I think that's always stayed with me really a sense that you should be good and I think sometimes that's a hard thing right you know you can end up berating yourself for not being better and I think actually one of the things I'm learning is from having worried all the time about am I good enough is learning actually I am enough but I also think there's a much wider thing here and that is a sense of purpose I think I'm lucky I feel lucky that I have a sense of purpose it's what drives me to do the work I do. I've never done a job because I had a particular job that I wanted to do. I've always been driven by the purpose behind doing the job. Mm -hmm. I became a journalist because I wanted to tell stories about other people and was curious about the world. I wanted to communicate how we live and who we are and how we differ. You know, I joined the Women's Equality Party because I wanted to, as what felt like the next step in that really, a sort of a campaign to bring another perspective with a view to better common understanding, with a view to creating policies and solutions that worked better for everyone. That's very much behind the work I'm doing at Young Women's Trust as well. And both with the Women's Equality Party and with your work with Young Women's Trust, my impression of you is obviously just, you know, the public profile that you have is that you don't get grumpy. You might get grumpy inside, but you're actually, you know, but you, there are different ways, aren't there, of driving change. And for some reason, you seem to be just turning what could make many people grumpy into, okay, let's do this and let's turn it into action. I mean, I think anybody who knows me well is probably roaring with laughter at, at hearing <laughs> you say that I don't get grumpy. I do, I get very grumpy. But I think getting much better at understanding when I need to just switch everything off and go and be grumpy and recharge. And also to understand that being positive and being hopeful is a campaigning tool in and of itself. I spent some time over the last year writing a book about activism called Five Rules for Rebellion. What I wanted to do was to, to bring together all the stuff that I felt that I had learned. And I'm still learning, you know, I'm not presenting this as a sort of wise old owl, here's everything you need to know. I'm, I'm very conscious of the amount I have still to learn on a daily basis. But campaigning is really hard and activism is really hard and the problems are so big, it's very easy to feel completely defeated by them. And the arenas are so gladiatorial now on these social media platforms that it is very easy to feel intimidated and not really want to do this stuff. And so part of what I did was interview lots of other brilliant women who have done 
lots of other brilliant women she says as though I am a brilliant woman but lots of brilliant women who are doing this work and it became really clear that that one thing that uh, that everybody had in common was a capacity to channel their anger into a positive energy and I think that is my constant ongoing challenge I do get grumpy I get more than grumpy I get absolutely furiously incandescently angry at the state of the world at the injustice and the inequality and the foolishness and the blinkeredness and the short-sightedness and the oh I could go on (laughs) but (laughs) I also know that that stuff eats you up unless you can find a way to turn it into an expression of solidarity and compassion for those people whose lives you want to work to change and in creating hope you are committing the ultimate act of defiance and that's what keeps me going that is such an inspiring quote i'm sure that's written somewhere in your book but yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is it is i have to say <laughs> i am lucky enough to work as part of our fellowship with a number of really inspirational women who mostly are people like me who have very young children and who are in position of middle or senior leadership in their organizations mm. and i guess I don't, that may not fit with your definition of activism, but I do see many of them as activists because they are trying to change and influence their own organization, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes very traditional organizations. So what I hear is that sometimes that goes really well and also other times they get labeled as emotional, grumpy, I don't know, like stressed mom, etc. Did you ever get labeled? And if yes, how did you deal with that? I'm sure I got labelled. I think I was probably labelled behind my back more often than I was to my face. I think that labelling women as angry or hysterical or difficult is a way to minimise what they're telling you. And the people who are doing the labelling are generally the people who like things fine just as they are. And I think it says a lot more about them than it does about us. And I think it's a key reminder that actually the problems that we're up against as women are structural. They're not within us. And I think there is a huge tendency, you know, we're surrounded by self-help messages. We're surrounded by exhortations to lean in, you know, do the work on yourselves before we do the work on our environments. And that is because we are surrounded by so many messages telling us that the problem is ourselves. And if we can just fix ourselves, we'll be able to fix the problem. This whole self-help industry, the whole lean-in message, do the yoga, do the meditation, get yourself a spiralizer, eat clean. None of those things are what is causing the problem. What is causing the problem is sexism and structural inequality. And you can run as many marathons as you like, as I personally have discovered. And you can be as healthy and as mindful and you can do as many yoga poses as possible. It's not going to change the structural inequality that you are up against. It makes you healthier and stronger to deal with it, but don't be deflected. The people who are labeling you as the problem know perfectly well what the problem is, but the problem is that they benefit from, they benefit from things being the way they are. So I would always say, find your allies, find your colleagues, there's strength in numbers. Don't feel that the thing you have to change is yourself. That is true. That just makes me think of a few men you may... I'm feeling a bit nervous saying this, actually, because I don't know how you feel about it. But I do think some of it... You are probably not going to agree with this. But anyways, I'll say it. I do think sometimes men are excluded from caring a little bit. Now, obviously, 
you know, how hard it is, you know, the whole fact that it's legal to not pay share parental leave at the same level as maternity leave or uh, as in the enhanced pay. And a company can, at the moment, pay a lot of money to someone going on maternity leave or not, but not on share parental leave, which is mostly taken by men, but obviously not only. Or also the fact that there's so many subliminal messages that assume that if a man wants to be fully involved in caring for children, that makes him less of a man. Or, you know, that actually, I have literally had someone, a man tell me who works for a very big, big brand firm. Oh, well, my boss has told me, um, when I told him to go, that I want to go and share parental leave, are you really serious? Do you really want to sacrifice your career like that? So I, I just thought, given we were talking about women so much, that was important to add to the conversation. Do you agree with that? Of course, I agree with that. I mean, anybody who's campaigned, as I have for years, for investment in care is investing for everyone to have a stake in care. The reason that we don't care about care is because women do it. And in order for us to care about care, we need men to do it too. And I think that it's really important that we uh, invest in shared parental leave. I think it's particularly important that we invest in use it or lose it paternity leave. And I think that it's vital for men to be part of this conversation. I also think that that's work for men to do. I am always looking for allies. I'm always here to discuss with men who want to be part of this discussion in good faith. Unfortunately, I think there are far too many conversations made in bad faith. And I don't have the time or the energy to do that anymore. I would love men to mobilise around the issues of shared care and use it or lose it paternity leave. I don't think it's for women to do that work for them. I think that right now we live in a system that penalises women, that dismisses women, that pushes women into poverty, that tells women that they are feckless if they have children, that tells them they are fit only for particular kinds of careers or not even for work at all. We have a universal credit welfare system that is no safety net at all. We hear from young women who right now are skipping meals daily, who are relying on food banks in order to be able to balance the cost of childcare and trying to access work. You know, this is a totally dysfunctional situation to be in. And so when you say to me, well, yes, but what about the men? My response is, we will only resolve this issue when men do care equally with women. We will only resolve this when everybody in society has a stake in care. And I think it's on men to speak up. I think it's on men to do that work, to share that work, to share that campaign, to share the care, to call for investment in care, to call for paternity leave, to call for better parental leave conditions, to work in careers that are deemed, you know, only fit for women and are consequently paid less. You know, we need men to be our allies, but we can't do that work for them. And I think continually asking women to talk about men as part of a feminist focus I think it's a misdirection. I think if men wanted to change the system, they would have done it millennia ago. I'm focused on supporting women now, and I would love men to come and join us. I think it's really important that men raise their voices. I think it's really important that men have the right to share care and the right to work flexibly and the right to work part-time. We can't do that campaigning for them. We need them to do it alongside us. Makes sense. And now we just spoke about the young women that you are supporting, many of whom are, as I understand, young mothers who may have to access food banks, even just to 
survive from day to day. So if someone is listening to this and wants to support you, what should they do? Uh, please come and have a look at our website. We are youngwomenstrust.org. Join us, become a supporter. You can sign up to our current campaign, uh, No Young Women Left Behind, which is calling for a gendered response to the COVID crisis, one that understands the need to invest in childcare as everybody is encouraged to go back to work, which is frankly uh, simply not possible for so many people who are trying to balance care responsibilities. We are asking the government to ask firms to publish their redundancy data and to mm-hmm. break it down by sex and other protected characteristics so we can oh, release the impact that this economic crisis is now having on women and young women in particular. You can find us on Twitter. At we're Young Women's Trust on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We have got a whole bunch of very exciting campaigns coming up and we would, we'd love to have your support. Brilliant. I'll definitely sign up after this conversation. It sounds like you're doing really important, essential work. I want to see if we can distill all your years of experience in driving change into something practical that people can implement. So I mentioned quite a few of our fellows, and I'm sure also the listeners, are involved in, you know, they really want to drive change in the organisation to make, for example, flexible working something by default, or, for example, they might want their organisation to publish the number of women furloughed and the number of women made redundant having heard this and maybe having been inspired by you what are the practical things that they should do let's say one practical thing they can do next week in order to start driving that change within their organization i think work out what time you've got work out what your skills are work out who you know in your network who has other skills that could help with this and look for organisations that are campaigning on the same issues that you care about. Once you've figured out what, your, what capacity you have, what skills you have, what support you have, and you can connect to a suggested template of initial actions, you'll be ready to take the first steps, I think. Thank you very much. And is there anything else or anywhere else where people can find out about your work? You mentioned your most recent book. I presume you're on LinkedIn and Twitter. Yes, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter as Sophie Running because I first started, uh, when I first started campaigning, I started running marathons to raise money for change. I'm on Instagram as Let's Change the World Ourselves. The book's called Five Rules for Rebellion and it's published by Icon. You can find Young Women's Trust at youngwomenstrust.org. I would also suggest having a look at another organisation that I recently co-founded called Activate Collective, which was set up to support women and women activists to stand for political office. That's another way you can look at potentially uh, making a change. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Sophie. Thank you. It's been lovely chatting. Thank you so much for listening today and also thank you for sending through such lovely tweets and messages and write reviews lynn and i lynn helps with making the podcast all pretty and you know audio pretty she and i we look at the podcasts obviously regularly and when we see a message with feedback we received something the other day saying you know it's really i had to sit in the car park to finish listening because it really made a difference to me and it's given me hope that sort of stuff really makes a difference so thank you for that and also thank you to everyone who has shared the podcast with others and subscribed please keep doing that that will be fantastic 
as I'm really passionate about developing and growing this podcast. And obviously any five-star reviews really help. As I mentioned at the beginning, we currently have fellowship program applications open. You can apply or find out more by going on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash fellowship. There is not that much time left. Applications close on 15th October. So let me know if you have any questions about that. So thank you and have a wonderful week.